Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. I'm pleased to welcome Audio Technica back as presenting partner for Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects. Their support has meant a lot, and their equipment is a huge reason why the show sounds great. Be sure to check out their creator pack if you're looking at content creation yourself. And if you're not a producer, get into their home audio setups to get your home entertainment on point. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. Last month, I received a message through the podcast's website contact form, which told me that the entire messy, ugly web of the San Francisco female orgasm movement was something I might want to take a look into. By coincidence, I was already scheduled to interview someone else about his experiences in this very movement. So this month's episode has become a rather hefty two-parter, and I hope you can join me for the full journey. Welcome to Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also contains sexually explicit content, discussions of sexual abuse, including of minors, and references to suicide. There's also a bit of coarse language. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening to. Natasha Tiku wrote for Gorka in 2013, Everyone is interested in doing fun things with their bodies but the impulse to systematise, replicate, package, sell, and build an ideology around it is uniquely Silicon Valley. She was writing about a conference run by a company that was monetizing the female orgasm. As it turns out, they weren't the only one doing so. In October, I was in the process of researching an organisation called One Taste, as a former member had reached out to tell me about his experiences with the group. It had started in San Francisco, and was based around courses related to the female orgasm. Then I received a message about a group called the Welcomed Consensus, which had started in San Francisco and was based around courses related to the female orgasm. It became apparent that there were direct links between the two groups, and so this episode will take a slightly different format than usual in order to explore both the Welcomed Consensus and One Taste. I owe my thanks to my guests Christine Talbot-Acosta, Sasha Nelson and Ruan Mipagala 
for helping me to understand these organisations and their origins. Lafayette Morehouse is instrumental in the conception of both the welcomed consensus and One Taste. Founded by Victor Barranco and his then-wife Suzanne in 1968, Lafayette Morehouse claims to be one of few intentional communities from the 1960s still in existence today. Now run by Vic's second wife and widow Cindy, its website positions it as an ongoing experiment in pleasurable group living for over 50 years. Moore University was run by the organisation from 1977 to 1997, before Californian laws around educational institutions changed, and outside of the accredited degrees, Morehouse has always run courses based on its own experiments in living. From its website... We consider ourselves social researchers and we study in the living laboratory of our lives and the lives of our students what reliably works and what doesn't work for creating a happy life. That includes, among other things, pleasurable interpersonal relationships, good effective communication and a gratifying sensual life. Lafayette Morehouse has faced a few controversies over the years, which is perhaps to be expected in an organisation rejecting mainstream social norms. But these include former student Alan Steele's claims that they coerced students into prostitution and provided them with LSD and other illegal drugs. The organisation sued the former student for libel over the accusations and also sued the San Francisco Chronicle over a series of articles covering these and other issues, but that case was dismissed. Lafayette Morehouse taught a practice they called deliberate orgasm. It involved a woman undressing from the waist down and having her clitoris stroked. For a time, Morehouse was probably best known for staging a public demonstration of a woman supposedly maintaining an orgasm for three hours, though this did include cigarette breaks. Christine Talbot Acosta began attending classes at Lafayette Morehouse when she was 18, in the late 1980s, with a man named RJ Testerman. She'd left home and a troubled relationship with her family to assist RJ in the salon he worked at in San Francisco, and she was living week to week at a hotel in the Tenderloin at the time. Christine had met RJ Testerman when she began babysitting for a woman named Mickey, who was an old friend of his. She was 12 and RJ was 32. Christine spoke to me about her experiences, and a content warning here, she speaks of statutory rape. He would come down for parties and bring his girlfriends. He was always dating models, you know. He was a he was really good looking, and he drove a Harley Davidson, and he always, you know, had these long legged blonde women on the back, and he was very exotic to me. And he put a lot of attention on me, and I didn't. I mean, he was grooming me. I didn't realize at the time, obviously, but um, you know, he would just talk to me and they let me drink with them and they would, you know, smoke pot with them and they'd have, she had part, a lot of parties and people over and um, I stayed there as much as I possibly could because things were so unhappy for me at home. And my parents were just kind of glad to be, you know, free of one more of their, one of their children. So um, as time went on, I guess it was, it was a few months after my 13th birthday, which was just before I started my freshman year. There was a big party. Everybody got drunk. I think it was his, it might have been his sister's birthday. Everybody got drunk. 
and like passed out and it there was nowhere left only RJ and I were left and it was like well where where are we going to sleep we're going to sleep on the pullout on the couch and uh yeah and we slept on the pullout on the couch it was the first time we had he had sex with me and then he continued to come down for the next 3 years usually at least once a month but sometimes it was up to 3 or 4 times a month he'd come down every weekend and hang out and it even got to the point where he would just like he would usually call me and say hey is Mickey out like she usually went out on Friday and Saturday nights and I'd say yes and then he'd come down and we'd hang out and we'd have sex and all that and sometimes he'd come down with other women um and he'd kind of like you know play grab ass with me and stuff on the side or actually have sex with me on you know kind of without them knowing and you know, he was always telling me how powerful I was and how smart I was. And I, you know, I made all these other women nervous and, you know, how I was in control. There was a lot of men around and, um, you know, think just they would come on to me and they would come at me. And he was always saying like, oh, see, you're just this really powerful woman and blah, blah, blah and all this. And so by the time I was 16, I, and I never told anybody I never told anybody. He said, he got me on the birth control and he said, you know, don't tell anybody, don't write in your diary anymore. I could get in a lot of trouble, you know, and I was in love with him. I loved him and he was, he treated me like an adult, right? And um, gave me everything. Not, he didn't give me everything, but he gave me attention that I, I wasn't getting anywhere else and told me he loved me. And um, he said, you know, whenever you're ready, come to San Francisco or actually he said, whenever you're ready, come and I'll set you up in Stinson beach. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. As her home life fell apart, Christine moved to San Francisco, just like RJ suggested when she was 16. His promise that he would set her up there turned out to be something quite different than what she had hoped for. At first she helped RJ out in the hair salon, but then around the time she turned 17, RJ sold her to a madam named Sharon. So um, I worked for Sharon for about eight months. Uh, she gave him some lump sum of money, like $10,000, I think, kind of bought me. And then he got a percentage of her cut. Um, and I worked for her for about eight months. And then she told me, like, you know, the only next thing to do was to like move on uh, to another madam or whatever. And it, I wasn't going to, I didn't want to do that. That wasn't going to happen. And RJ and I had a falling out. Um, some money had gone missing at, I, at a bachelor party that I was at. And Sharon got really upset and RJ got really upset. And we had this huge fight and, and that was it. This was the way that their relationship always went, on and off fight and then make up. Eventually, Christine began attending courses with Lafayette Morehouse at the suggestion of RJ. She feels that she gained much from what she learned at Moore University and says she never saw anything untoward happen during her time there. We used to drink a lot, do drugs and snort cocaine and, you know, go party and stuff in San Francisco. I mean, that's kind of what we did. And then after I turned 18, um, he was a Vietnam vet. He is a Vietnam vet. And he had a lot of problems. I mean, now I look back and I can see 
that he had PTSD, he has PTSD, and that there was a lot of hypervigilance, and he was very paranoid about everything. He used to keep a gun in the rollabout of the hair salon and a, you know, a couple bottles of tequila as well, and there was always this high paranoia um, that he had. And eventually, and he used to do a lot of cocaine. It was also a thing in the hairdressers in downtown San Francisco at that time. Like there was just a lot of cocaine and he, but he went to the VA and uh, they told him to stop doing cocaine, but not to stop drinking. And he got into like a vets group. And then uh, through that vets group, he went, got into AA for a while and he got sober. And during that time, he got involved with more university. He had a client who turned him on to it and um, he did some classes and I was not sober at the time and uh, we still worked together but and we still hung out together sometimes but I did because I was not sober I was not you know we weren't hanging out together much but he wanted me to do the class so he sent me for my first class to more university They're, they call it basic sense and um, he paid for it and I went over, and it's the, the, the first course, which is a, uh, a lecture discussion where they're just talking for two days. And so I went and I did that class, and I didn't, I didn't really remember much about the class after it happened. I really liked the teachers, and they were nice to me and stuff, but I was pretty high that whole time. And then um, that same year, when I turned 18, I got cancer, and... I had a molar pregnancy and uh, I didn't want to have chemo and I got really into meditation and I got sober and I got healthy and thank God I was lucky and I didn't have to have anything else after a year of them tracking me. I didn't need to do anything else. Um, I happened to, I, I got pregnant and I had an abortion and that's how they found out I had the cancer. So after a year of tracking um, and I got sober and then RJ and I went and did the basic sense course together again at Moore University. And that's when things really changed for us. Like we went through this whole like experience. It was kind of like being on acid without the drugs, you know, it was very psychedelic and intense emotionally. And um, uh, we like got that, it, you know, we kind of like swallowed that whole course, like the whole thing that Vic had laid out. And um, from that point on, it was like, okay, this is what we want to do. I asked Christine about her perspective on her relationship with RJ now, looking back on it with the benefit of hindsight. You know, RJ, when I was a kid and like when I was a teenager and I was, um, you know, I was really hurt. My dad was really violent and I'm going to cry and I'm sorry. Um, but it was really painful. I had a, it was very painful. And, uh, you know, he made it okay. He told me, you know, that I had to forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing. And, you know, he was always telling me to rise above, you know, rise above everything that had happened with us. And, um, and it was like, he always said he loved me best and he was the one there for me. And, you know, I was this incredibly strong woman that nobody understood but him and, you know, that he loved me more than anybody. I mean, when I got cancer, 
my parents didn't know that I'd even had an abortion. Like nobody, nobody, by the time I was 18, I mean, nobody knew me because I never told anybody anything about him. I had to hide everything. But he was like my boss and my boyfriend, you know, he was my lover and he was my friend and he was everything to me for a lot of years, for a lot, a lot of years. And we would fight, but it was always like I, because I was fucked up, right? Like it was because I wasn't, I was like somehow like I was fighting him. Like I didn't want to do what he said or, you know, whatever. And then it would always be, oh, I just wasted all this time on you. You know, you're just, you know, you're just a fuck up, you know, blah, blah, blah. When Christine started at the Moore University courses, RJ was seeing a woman named Wendy, and Christine became involved with them both for a while. After she lost interest in the arrangement, they still stayed close. RJ, Wendy and Christine all felt that they didn't have much in the way of family, so they wanted to create their own family together. Moore University seemed to have the blueprint for what that could look like. Christine moved into the Moore University house in San Francisco and stayed for almost a year. Wendy's grandmother had a house on Juiced Avenue in the city, and she and RJ moved in and started inviting more people to join them. When Christine left Moore University, she and her boyfriend moved into the Juiced house. She was still taking classes at Lafayette Moore House and was also participating in Mark groups, gatherings in which a group would play three different communication games together. The Juiced House was initially a party house, with a lot of drinking and sex and not a lot of structure. Christine headed off on a trip to Europe in 1989, and while she was away, a couple named Vera and Steve Badansky left Lafayette Moore House and brought its structure to RJ and his group. Vera and Steve had been with Vic Baranko since Morehouse's early days, and with their commercial nous, the welcomed consensus was born. By the time they talked Christine into coming back to be a part of it, It was a fully-fledged business. I wondered why Lafayette Morehouse never felt slighted over the stealing of their course materials and IP. And Christine told me that wasn't really their style, and also that Vic was in no shape to pursue anyone legally, as he'd become addicted to heroin. From the About page of Lafayette Morehouse's website, It is not our goal to have others live as we do, but rather to offer our findings so that our students can use whatever elements they find beneficial. Since leaving and confronting her past, Christine has set up a website called The Truth About RJ Testament, which is linked in the show notes. She continues to document her experiences here. From her website, quote, Just to be clear, there is benefit in the information. Like everything and everyone else, it is made up of good, bad and indifferent. The information that RJ teaches is word for word what he got from Vic Baranko. He has not written anything new or changed even one line. He just changed the names of the courses. I asked Christine whether she had an idea of when things might have taken a turn for the worse in the welcomed consensus. She said there were problematic elements from the beginning, but when Vera and Steve left, this may have been a turning point. I think they were there for like maybe four or five months and then RJ punched Steve. We don't, nobody knows really what happened because they never, I never got the full story, but RJ had a little bit to drink and then he punched Steve and then that it was that their relationship was over and he never spoke to them again. 
And I really feel like that was when things started to change in that RJ was now going to be the guru. You know, Steve had all this experience and he was kind of like the head of the group because even though they didn't live there, like the business, like they knew the business, they'd been doing this business all these years already. But once he was gone, it was like, okay, well, we're just going to do it the way that RJ thinks is right. The primary method of recruiting people into the welcomed consensus is through what they call a benchmark, which is their version of Lafayette Morehouse's mark groups. So a benchmark is a weekly social event that's open to the public, where various communication games are played. For benchmarks, a key one of these is withholds. Christine has a glossary on her Truth About RJ Testament website that defines these like so. A practice where one person speaks their value judgments or emotional charge about anything or anyone to another person in a neutral manner. The stated purpose of a withhold or a withhold session is to release the emotional charge so we can be closer to the people in our lives. But in the cult context, withholds are a way to glean valuable information about a person's doubts, fears and vulnerabilities. Withholds are supposed to be confidential, but Christine writes of them being discussed at length between the leaders and other members. Quote, Even if they aren't saying your exact words, they are talking about their impressions of you, including your withholds, so they can have the intel on how best to handle you. After a few more blow-ups with RJ, Christine and her partner Dennis moved out of the Juiced Avenue house, but they stayed close with everyone at the welcomed consensus. They'd still run benchmarks and spend holidays together. By then, some of them had moved out of San Francisco and gotten, they got some property out of San Francisco because the neighbors were complaining. And um, there were like 16 of us living in that place when Dennis and I moved out. This was in a two-bedroom house, though the garage had been turned into another bedroom. I wondered whether Christine could pinpoint a time when it all evolved from just courses and self-improvement into a more encompassing belief system. Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things happened. One of the things is the persecution that everybody felt living in the house, right? Because supposedly we were living this enlightened lifestyle and we were sexually open and free and we weren't bound by convention. And, you know, there was a big, there was a lot of glamour attached to that. Um, But there was also a lot of rejection of the outside world and the way outside people functioned and their thoughts. And um, RJ is, you know, very paranoid and very hypervigilant. And so he was always seeing attacks from the outside. And so they bought a piece of property up in Shingletown um, to get out of the city and to take the pressure off the neighborhood. And... Um, that, I think that that really changed the dynamic because then they were, nobody was working outside jobs. They were just depending on the welcome consensus's income and what they got from Free the Need. And, um, you know, they were isolated. 
Free the Need is the charity arm of the organisation, based on Lafayette Morehouse's Turn On to America charity. And I'll speak a little more about it later. So they just isolated themselves outside of the city so much that these things that they started doing, like, I mean, they were doing this even when I came back. We had to do an hour's worth of withholds every day in the morning, each. So, and RJ had this thing, like, everybody had to get up at 6 a.m., right? And I don't think that RJ read a book about how to control people, but I know that he is just very controlling. And so he wanted to control when everybody got up, what everybody did. Christine told me women could stay home if they were fun. Usually guys would be sent out to work, and then the women in the house could just stay home and work on the welcome consensus stuff. Um, it was like a thing for a guy to get to the point in his, his training that he was, you know, housebroken and he was allowed to be home all the time. Um, only RJ was allowed to be home all the time. And I don't, I do think it was just more of his controlling nature, you know, with the paranoia and all of that that started these things. Well, if we get people to do these withholds, an hour's worth of withholds every day, they're nicer to be around, right? If we get them to do an hour's worth of withholds every day and then they have a 10-minute due date in the morning and a 10-minute due date in the afternoon, they're going to be happier people. They're going to be easier to get along with. So, you know, and since the goal is supposed to be having a pleasurable life, right? Like, isn't that, doesn't that make sense that you would do whatever it took to be happy and to feel pleasure? The do in due date stands for deliberate orgasm. So the Lafayette Morehouse concept. A due date would last 10 to 15 minutes. The central concept in the welcomed consensus is that the path to enlightenment is through the female orgasm. RJ told a farmwork visitor in 2016, quote, We are the female orgasm people. We have studied happiness for the last 15 years, and we have found that when women have more orgasms, they make more of the right decisions. That worker hightailed it out of the farm the next morning, reneging on her two-week commitment. I, I don't think that RJ fully believes it, uh, I would ne- I would never believe that he fully believed that believes the path to enlightenment is through an orgasm. You know, I believe that he it's always been a business for him. It's always been a way to make a living um, and not have to pay any taxes because he doesn't pay any taxes and he doesn't have his name on any property or any legal filings. Like he's always flown under the radar that way. But I think that the women are true believers. With the acquisition of the more remote property, another method of bringing people in became through woofing, or the worldwide opportunities on organic farms. Nowadays, they also use dating apps and social media platforms. In the late 1990s, a woman named Nicole Daydone came to the welcomed consensus. Oh, she was in her 20s, you know, her early 20s. And she was doing classes with the welcome consensus. And I was there when she did her confirmation class. And they were living in Shingletown. And she, she hadn't moved in yet, but 
she had done her confirmation class and she had come, I remember there was a new year's party that came up and everybody came up to shingle town and we all partied and stuff like that. She was doing classes with the welcome consensus. And then she went up and did some classes with more university. Like she got interested in more university and it was like very fluid then like people would go back and forth in the two they would say like a friendly competition that wasn't really that friendly on the backside, you know, but um, she did this audience with Vic, Baranko, the man who founded it, right, and wrote all of this material. And so the story goes is that she, when she did this audience with Vic, she told him that she wanted to run the show, like that she thought this was a great business model and she wanted it. And Vic said, of course, baby, you can have it all. You can move in here. You can run the show. So then the audience ends and then the reality hits, right? Because he's one man and he lives with, you know, <laughs> all these other people and all these women who really run things. And so basically they ran her off is what I was told. It was like, yeah, yeah, baby, whatever, you know, but you're going to have to jump through all these hoops before you can even move onto the property. So then she started hanging out more and more at the Welcome Consensus Nicole moved into the Juiced Avenue house and she started running benchmarks. So she was really hard on people. Like, you're not working the right mark. Why are you talking to that poor guy? You should be talking to that rich guy. Why are you talking to that ugly girl? You should be talking, you know what I mean? Like they would do that stuff. And so those, there was not, people weren't really happy. Do you know what I mean? But she was like really business minded. Nicole and Christine had a falling out when Nicole shared some information from one of Christine's withholds with RJ, and Christine's version of events is that it was entirely inaccurate information anyway. So RJ and Christine had another blow-up. But then Nikki and I, you know, she called to apologise and she wasn't very sincere, and I was like, whatever. I started calling her Sticky. Sticky Nikki, because she just was such a liar. Do you know what I mean? She was a hustler, and it was really clear, like, she was always hustling people. So, um, you know, so she moved out. They all moved into Rob and Carol's house. Rob Candell and his wife Carol were members who had let a few people from the Welcome Consensus move in with them when things were getting a bit full-on in the Juiced Avenue house. Rob was quite wealthy. The next thing Christine heard, Rob and Carol had gotten a divorce, and Nicole had taken Rob and another Welcomed Consensus member, and they'd started up their own organisation. It's hard to find out a great deal about Nicole Daydone's personal history online. From website archives and conference speaker biographies, you'll mostly read about how in 1995 she co-founded the 111 Mina Gallery in San Francisco's Soma District and ran it for a year. She apparently graduated from San Francisco State University with a bachelor's degree in gender communications. Though I've read elsewhere that she was headed towards a doctorate in semantics, that she studied theosophy for a number of years, and that she was training to be a Buddhist nun. The New York Times reported her father was imprisoned for molesting two young girls and died of cancer when she was 27. Something I never read was about her history in sex work. And this is not to shame any sex workers, but it was clearly not a background that Nicole wanted out in the world. 
which seems kind of strange considering what she became best known for. Nicole was a stripper at The Lusty Lady in San Francisco. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's considered a feminist strip club because it's a co-op. It's a stripper's co-op. I remember being in Shingletown with her and RJ was like teasing her about something. Then he was like, hey, Chrissy, you know, Nicole, she said, he says that we're, we're, uh, we're hooker therapy. That, you know, we're the cure. We're the cure for hooker therapy. And I remember feeling really like irked. Like, did he tell her about me? Do you know what I mean? One Taste was set up in the early 2000s, and Christine told me where they deviated from the Morehouse method. They took the same information, the same stuff like Vic did, the same kind of cell, it was the same structure and everything. But what they did is they called it oming. And they, they brought in yoga and meditation, like they updated the information. And that's one thing that RJ would never do. You know, he was like a fundamentalist with that information. He didn't, he took it at face value and he didn't change it at all. And all of the courses they teach are exactly the same information, the same lines. And it's pretty dated. You know, they do it a little differently than they used to, but Nikki was able to update it. Nicole positioned herself as a pioneer of the slow sex movement and the inventor of the OM or orgasmic meditation. She'd later claim that she learned the technique from a Buddhist monk at a party. Nicole set up a residence in which the inhabitants understood themselves to be researching all different aspects of human interaction. Sound familiar? In a March 2009 article, Nicole told journalists Patricia Lee Brown and Carol Pogash for the New York Times that she didn't want or encourage the reverence they saw her receiving. They quote her as saying, there's a high potential for this to be a cult. At this stage, Nicole was dating venture capitalist Rhys Jones. It's unclear when Rob Candell, who she'd started One Taste with, ceased his involvement. By the time Rock Moran wrote about One Taste for Playboy in 2018, a few journalists had sussed out that Nicole had gleaned some of her ideas from Morehouse. Nellie Bowles wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle, Baranko died in 2002, and Dodone said she had distanced herself from his legacy, insisting there is nothing cultish about one taste. Rock Morin wrote that Nicole combined ideas from Lafayette Morehouse with those from groups as diverse as Scientology and Thelema, and that was the beginning of one taste. The name itself was pulled from a Buddha quote about enlightenment. Nicole said in an instructional video, Our vision is that one day you'll hear yoga, meditation and orgasm all in the same sentence without whispering the third. Rock attended the same introductory class as Ruan Meepagala in 2012. Ruan spoke to me about his experiences for this episode. Yeah, I first saw the founder uh, Nicole's TED Talk in 2007. I was in college. I was a freshman. And I just, I, I mean, I was very into personal development I was dealing with a lot of anxiety and confidence issues, among other things, but but it got me very obsessed with TED Talks, any sort of self-improvement information. And um, her TED Talk really spoke to me. I mean, I clicked on it because it had orgasm in the title, and that seemed unusual for a TED Talk. Um, But it also, she spoke about sexuality and a connection in a way that I hadn't really thought of before. And um, 
and looking, I didn't think of it at the time, but looking back, I was certainly very lonely. So something in that spoke to me. And um, maybe about five years later, I had graduated from school. I was living in Manhattan. And um, that summer, Tim Ferriss featured them in his book that came out that year, uh, The 4-Hour Body. So there's a chapter on sexuality. So like it reappeared in my in my life. And then within months, they, um, I think working off of the publicity they got from the four hour body, they were setting up shop in other cities. So I think that's when they started their London branch and they started their uh, New York branch. And I went to one of their intro events thinking I would learn something about sexuality or something along what I knew about them. And instead we played these communication games that were very vulnerable. Um, I'd never seen strangers be so emotionally vulnerable with each other. And something in that, like, I didn't really understand what they were doing, but I was kind of in an existential crisis and I wanted to do something to change my life. And it, and one thing led to another where I took their class and eventually moved into their residence. And I mean, that's, that's how we got in though. I looked up Nicole Daydone's TED talk and it's a TEDx San Francisco presentation called Orgasm, the Cure for Hunger in the Western Woman that now has over 2 million views on YouTube. It's also now accompanied by a disclaimer. We flagged this talk, which was filmed at a TEDx event, because it appears to fall outside TEDx's curatorial guidelines. The sweeping claims and assertions made in this talk only represent the experiences and views of the speaker. TEDx events are independently organised by volunteers. Nicole finishes her talk with the words... It'll be turned on women and those who dare to stroke us who actually change the world by feeding this desire for connection that we all have. She also says in the talk that it was a mention in the New York Times that really got people coming to the door at one taste after a pretty slow start. Ruan was 24 when he attended his first event. I asked him how many others were in attendance. Um, maybe eight uh, not including the facilitators. It was pretty small. It was before the real staff had made it over from San Francisco. So it was kind of, um, actually, they weren't even really staff members. They were volunteers who were very, very dedicated to One Taste Mission that ran that first event. I think that was in September 2012. Maybe around October or November, they moved a lot of their real staff from San Francisco to New York, and they started holding bigger events, which had 30 to 50 people. It's a pretty diverse crowd. I mean, uh, all different ages. It was about gender balance, or sometimes there'd be a few more women than men. Um, people seemed to be looking for something interesting. Um, either they were frustrated with their love lives or lacking a sense of purpose. So there's a lot of, I think, men specifically. Oh, no, I think both genders who had some sort of sexual hang up. Like, there are a lot of, like, I myself, I, I, probably mostly related to my anxiety. I was experiencing a psychogenic uh, erectile dysfunction. Um, I think a lot of women uh, who were dealing with anorgasmia, usually psychogenic, were also finding their way um, to one taste because the orgasmic meditation practice uh, was advertised to, to it didn't, they didn't claim that it was going to cure everything, but it was kind of suggested that you know, if you could get in touch with your feelings, if you could get in touch with sensation, a lot of these psychogenic issues go away. Um, which, I mean, I think there is some truth to it as well. And um, in fact, there's a lot of truth to what they said, but they kind of twisted it very often in how they sold people. Um, 
And, you know, I mean, what they really delivered in those intro events, they were called turn-ons. There was like turn-on New York, turn-on London, turn-on San Francisco. These intro events, I mean, they're all communication games, but they got people to be very vulnerable with each other and really feel a sense of connection that especially, at least for Americans in big cities, is a pretty rare experience. So there's something very exhilarating about that. I asked Rowan to tell me about the structure of the courses. Okay, so from the turn-on events, which cost $10, sometimes they were free, but usually they cost $10. Um, People, they were pitched the how to own class. Usually there was two products pitched at the end of every every event. So the idea was you get people turned on, you get them in their bodies, you get them emotionally open, and then it becomes a lot easier to sell them. Like when I was on the sales team, um, they often told us like the best sales strategy is to make people feel good and then they say yes to anything. So... They would pitch, they always put pitch the how to own class, which is a full day class. It ranged from um, $97 to $150. Um, that was a one day class, usually on a Saturday. In New York, they had that once a month and there'd be between 30 and 50 people signed up for that. Um, and then they'd also pitch some other higher ticket programs. So they went through many different programs um, when I was there, but the ones that like the really big money makers was a mastery program. Um, which was basically applying their principles to different aspects of sexuality. Um, that was between five and around $5,000. Um, and then there was the coaching program, which was a year long program, which I took. Um, and that was between 11 and 15 or between 10 and $15,000. Um, and then later when I was leaving, they had a program that was a two week intensive with the founder. And that was between 20 and $40,000. And, I, and they, they had things more expensive than that after I left, like a yearly membership, which I think was $60,000 a year. And they might have had other things behind closed doors too. So with this kind of money coming in, there was plenty to go around, right? Ruan goes into more depth in his own podcast, which is called The Rwando Podcast, and you'll find it linked in the show notes. But he talks about how when he made an issue of his increasing levels of debt while working for One Taste, he was made to feel selfish. Very few people were really making money. Even um, even my mentor in the cult, um, she was single-handedly responsible for over $4 million of revenue a year, but she got paid minimum wage. Like, it was this idea that, like, we're not doing it for ourselves. We're not doing it to have wealth for ourselves. We're doing it to enlighten people. They just had, it was more like we're doing it for one taste, but it was spiritualized in a way that, um, it was like you're doing it for the organization of One Taste, but it was really like you were doing it for for God, in a sense. And um, both of those, both One Taste, the organization, and this concept of God were both referred to as the orgasm. It was like kind of like the Tao in Taoism, like you're doing it, you're doing it for something, uh, for a higher power, not for you. So when people were uh, encouraged to spend a lot of money, including myself, it was framed as if you're if you're so worried about your own money, you're selfish or you're 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 not really believing in like the greater good or the greater cause. Look at you, you're so attached to your money. So like when I worked for them, I worked for them for me four months, I did go in with this like I really I really did believe in their mission and I really did feel we were helping people. And in many ways we were helping people. Um but then after two months of working hundred hour weeks and not getting paid, I did complain about it. And I, and I got publicly shamed for being concerned about my own welfare. It was framed as if I was being this greedy person who wanted to make money from all the money we were making. Meanwhile, like, you know, I was, I was going into debt. I mean, I, I, I was paying them rent and paying them course fees while working full time for them without 
receiving any income. Um, but even even as ridiculous as that was, I, I almost took on this idea of like, oh man, am I being selfish? Like, what's going on? Like, they had a very clever way of flipping things on you, and um, and, and they had a clever way of getting everyone in a in a room to agree at certain times. So you always seemed like the idiot if you're going against them. A few things appealed to Ruan about One Taste around where it seemed different from other organizations he'd worked for. Yeah, so on the surface, or on paper, it was a pretty flat structure. Like, they had this very egalitarian ethic. And, and actually, one of the things that really drew me to the organization and the community was that it was so matriarchal in the sense that, like, not not just the women were in power, but, like, the, the values seemed to be very different. Like, it wasn't in every office environment I had been in had been as I worked many sales jobs it was very like sometimes hyper masculine a lot of like uh, a lot of uh, interpersonal competition it was kind of like a doggy dog thing whereas at least on the surface one taste was very driven by connection and supporting each other and vulnerability and even the idea of like the salespeople not getting commission it was like oh because we were, were really doing this because we believe in it and I really that that really drew me in um, but in reality, it wasn't really a flat power structure. I mean, um, Nicole, the founder, was at the top, certainly. And then there was an executive team, which were kind of like her disciples. They all had C-level exec roles, like there's someone named CFO and someone named CEO and stuff like that. But those, I think there were six people who were considered the executive team. They're kind of like like her apostles almost. Like they were, they did run the company, but they also tended to her needs and like were her main evangelists and then they also these six or so people also ran the cities so like my my mentor in the cults was the head of sales for the whole organization but she was also head of new york which is why i reported directly to her and then beneath that there was like and i i mean i hope i can express this well but the what the way their power structure worked it was it wasn't based on clear roles necessarily but there was like a a chain of approval like someone always was seeking the approval of someone else. And that's kind of how they're, that's kind of how they control people. Like I reported to my cult member there when I was on staff, people reported to me, or even when I wasn't on staff, there are people who reported to me who then reported to my, whoever I was trying to get approval from. And that's kind of how they, um, that's kind of how like the pyramid worked there. Um, because within one taste, everyone was just a staff member if you weren't on the exec team, but there was certainly like a chain, like, almost different tiers of employment um, based on when you came in and based on how much authority you were given uh, on a social level. Ruan moved into the New York communal house and I wondered about the living arrangements there. Yes. Yeah, so the the number of people in the house varied in the year I was there, but at its peak, they had 24. I think the, the lowest it ever got maybe was 10. Um, we had three apartments within this building uh, at, at the peak, at least, and very often would walk in between and stuff. Um, uh, there was, well, we always slept two, two people to a bed. That was part of, that was actually uh, told to us that that was part of our work living in there. Part of the research was being in close proximity with someone, which I think there is truth to certainly have to confront certain things about yourself when you're living closely with a person. Very often it was a male-female uh, pairing. Um, there were a few more women than men typically, so sometimes two women slept together. But 
Uh, I mean, and even in, in the first room I was in, we were in a four person bunk bed. So there are four of us in one bedroom, uh, two men and two women. And um, yeah, I mean, there's always someone around. Um, for me, being very introverted and very isolated up until that point, it was kind of a shock to just, there was never, there was never privacy. Like even using the bathroom, there was often someone in the bathroom doing something else while you were, while you were in there. Like it was normal to shower with someone else in the bathroom. There's always someone around, um, which in some ways was interesting in terms of growth. Like you, you couldn't, you had to, you had to be congruent with your behavior. Um, but also, um, yeah, you just never had a private moment to think to yourself. I asked Rowan to tell me about the daily routine in the communal house. Uh, yeah, so when I lived in the One Taste residence in New York, um, the mornings were pretty strict. So we would wake up before 7 because by 7 a.m. we were all in the common area together, paired off doing the orgasmic meditation practice, uh, the 15-minute clitoris stroking thing. Um, we did two of those in the morning. Then we... Two people would cook breakfast for everyone while everyone else um, cleaned the house. And it was on a 15-minute timer, just like the ohms. Everything was 15 minutes. So we would clean the house for 15 minutes. Someone would make breakfast. When that timer was done, we'd all be eat breakfast together. Um, and then we would do a practice called fear inventory, which was which is kind of a kind of a borrowed practice from the 12-step program. Uh, and sometimes that always varied in time, but it would at one point we were doing it for an hour a day. Sometimes it was 15 minutes. Then very often um, we would meditate together and the latter part of the practices would change, but sometimes we'd also go to yoga together. It was a big thing to do hot yoga, especially uh, if you're on the staff, everyone was doing hot yoga. Um, and then, yeah, that was, that was basically the morning. <laughs> and if, if you had a day job, you didn't have to go to all of that, but very few people ended up keeping day jobs by after a few months. Um, when I worked for them, sometimes our morning practices would go until 2 p.m. in the afternoon and then we would start working. Um, so it was very, very regimented, kind of like kind of like an ashram or or any other kind of spiritual commune. The schedule always changed. But um, yeah, when I worked for them, working for them was a 24 hour job. Like there were no clear work hours. Um, so sometimes we would have to start working pretty early in the morning. Um, right after like, we always ohm. that was a big part of being in one taste you had to be doing the ohm thing that was our connecting practice so um the shortest version of morning practice we would just ohm, eat breakfast and then start working and uh working for them was kind of a random thing like one's role changed all the time like sometimes you're on sales sometimes you're on event production sometimes you had to move boxes very often I was encouraged to own with different women in the community. Um, and then they would be like, often it would happen right before they had a sales call or something. And looking back, it was, I was probably used in a way to get them turned on. So they would say yes to high ticket programs. Um, and then at, in the evenings we had the turn on event twice a week. Very often we had other sales events. Um, there's always something going on. And sometimes we'd be working until 11 PM or midnight um, on event days, sometimes we'll be working even, uh, even later than that. Uh, and then still waking up at seven to home. We never had days off when I was on the staff, but if you need, it's like they had this, uh, belief in following your feelings and expressing what you need. So we didn't, we never had scheduled days off, but if you needed a day off and you told everyone 
you could get a day off. Or if like, if you were flustered and you need to take the afternoon off, you just told everyone and very often you, you could just take the time off. It was very unstructured, but there were no um, given days off. If like, if you didn't have a reason, you didn't take the day off. I wondered if Rowan could tell me a bit more about the fear inventory practice. I know it's taken from the 12-step program. Um, basically, it's a written meditation where, with like a specific structure where you write to God or your higher power or whatever you want to call it. I always had an issue writing God, but, you know, write something. And you would write, um, I'm resentful at blank because I have fear that. And then you list a bunch of fears. I have fear that, I have fear that, I have fear that. And the idea is, was to keep going deeper and deeper and recognize that anything that bothers you in life is really about your fears, which, um, which is not an untrue thing. I mean, it's certainly, certainly helpful to people going through addiction recovery. I think I forget what step it is, the fourth step or something like that. Um, but it was also, and, and so there was like a, sometimes there'd be like a therapeutic feeling of like, oh, I'm annoyed at this person because I'm actually feared about this insecurity. And you recognize that and it's nice. Um, we'd also have to read it out to someone. So that was part of the practice. You write it out, you read it to someone, they say, thank you. And then you rip it up. It was supposed to be like a clearing of, um, yeah, clearing of your emotions. But also, also if, if you didn't have things to write, people would always say, oh, you're not going deep enough. Like you, you actually have more fears in there if you explore it. So uh, looking back, it was actually kind of a way for us to always be focused on fears. Like you always had to have something you're afraid of. There's always had to be something wrong with you in order for you to do this practice, which was, so it's kind of like a circular thing, but I think it did keep us uh, focused on, on uh, inadequacies. You may have noticed that the practice bears some resemblance to the withholds from the welcomed consensus too. I asked Rowan about the employment arrangement and whether he had understood himself to be volunteering from the outset. So I was one of six people hired to work for the New York branch out of the coaching program. And um, at first it was kind of a probationary employment where I was volunteering, but then maybe after a month or so, they offered me a job and they offered me a job, which was to be paid on sales commission. And then after two months they forgot or they, they changed it up and said, oh no, we, were, we didn't say we we're going to pay you anything. Um, but that was like a later thing. It was, um, yeah, it was started off as volunteer work and then it became, uh, it was always seen as a promotion. Like you were invited to volunteer and then you were invited to work for the company. Ruan was going into debt and became concerned about his financial position, which seems reasonable to me. Unfortunately, he didn't have much in the way of a contract of employment to fall back on. They had this idea that um, most of the world runs on, you know, in their words, the masculine, so like hard structures and contracts and like coldness, whereas like, in quotes, the feminine was based on feelings and it can change at any moment. So very often they would use that as an excuse to just change what they said. Like, oh, you know, you're being like, uh, there's an insult in that world. Uh, you're being too masculine. I asked Rowan about his impressions of Nicole Day Doan. Well, Nicole is very impressive. I mean, uh, I was drawn into her by her TED talk, but I was also even more drawn in my first encounter with her, which was at that intro class I took, the How to Own class. And she really is a very intelligent woman. She does have uh, abilities to make people feel certain ways. I mean, I guess we could call that charisma, but like she has a level of empathy. And, and One Taste really did teach people how to use empathy. In fact, they taught how to use empathy as a weapon. And Nicole was probably the best at it. I mean, she could really read a person's emotional state 
and often for the best, tell them what they needed to hear in order to move past whatever they were stuck with, whether it was a lack of confidence or confusion in their relationship or like she had this incredible ability to empathize with people. And that in itself is so magnetic, like very often she would seem like she was mind reading, but really she could just feel people's emotions with such accuracy that, um, yeah, it was, it's, uh, it is, it is a gift. I mean, you could help a lot of people and I think she did help a lot of people with it, but she also used it, um, for selfish gain. Nicole Shedden took her boyfriend to a one-taste-om class in Sydney in 2017, and she wrote about it for Body and Soul. Quote, We felt like we dodged an exhibitionist sex cult and survived, but not unscathed. It was seven days before we could bring ourselves to be intimate again, and to this day we've never omed. So much for a sexual awakening. I asked Ruan about something I'd read, that within one taste, oming wasn't really seen as a sexual practice at all and was more about deep human connection. Uh, that was the focus. I mean, obviously, I mean, you're touching genitals, so there is a sexual component. And But it, it is true. I mean, this may sound silly, but if you do it a lot, if you're like, if it's something you're doing every day with various people, it does become desexualized. I mean, maybe you get turned on every so often, but it, it does eventually become more of a meditation and less about the orgasm part. Like, it's really about tuning into another person's body and responding to her sensory feedback moment to moment, which I, I think, I mean, I still believe there's like a lot of value to it. I think uh, one taste maybe just took it too far or exaggerated its benefits. Everyone who lived in an ohm house did it twice every morning. Um, I later had my own ohm house and we only did it twice every morning, uh, Monday through Friday, but it was still, it was a morning thing. Um, there'd be group community ohms um, before turn on events. So that would be twice a week in Manhattan. Uh, I ran my own once a week in Brooklyn. Uh, but then people, people who are really in the Ohm community, or if you lived in an Ohm house, you might be Oming in the afternoon or in passing or inviting people over to your home to Ohm. Like people who Ohmed seriously Ohmed a lot. Like when I worked for One Taste, there were days that I Ohmed 10 times in a day, which means like half the day I was Oming. Um, and that wasn't too uncommon. I wondered from a male perspective, what Rowan felt he got out of the Ohm practice which from an outsider's view may seem like a pretty one-way experience. The main thing that I got out of it, and I still believe I, this was a huge benefit I got from One Taste and the own practice, was that it really taught me on a concrete level what empathy is. Like, if you really pay attention to another person and stop thinking about yourself and really pay attention to how they're feeling, you can pick up a lot on... I mean, you can get a lot of information from a person. So if you can really focus on how to respond to someone's body, you can begin to recognize how they're feeling in a conversation or uh, when it's okay to be stand close or not close or I mean, anything, anything that's that we would consider socially intuitive. Like you really, I mean, I've, I've had so much moment to moment sensory feedback that has allowed me to trust my social intuition or, or not. Um, and I, I would say that's the main thing that um, Oming did. I think some other side benefits were, were certainly 
getting in touch with the sensations of my body, like to get out of my head and stop being so analytical and trust my feelings essentially. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's basically it. That's the, that's the main thing. For Nicole Daydone, it seemed the levels of intuition learned from the practice should feed into other aspects of life. Rock Morin wrote for Playboy, quote, Your job, she told her personal assistants, is to know what I desire before I even know it myself. Assistants recalled being punished on numerous occasions for not being able to read her mind. End quote. Ruan expanded on the one-directional nature of oming within one taste for me. Reciprocation in terms of stroking a man's body was uh, was not was actually uh, discouraged. In fact, uh, if anyone did choose to stroke a man's body and they did have a male-owned practice, it was very it was made very clear that this is not reciprocation. Like the idea behind the own practice was that it's it in itself is a complete activity. Like a, a woman doesn't need to doesn't owe a man after doing it for him for for her. Um, so it's supposed to be complete. Yeah, so uh, something they would often say is like, you know, a woman's obviously getting something out of the practice. The man is also getting something out of the practice. No reciprocation is needed. And in terms of the male stroking, it was considered uh, that it was considered an advanced practice. Of course, they charge more money for it. It was in the mastery program to learn how to do it, at least. Um, And it was said that women should only do it when they feel fully full. So they're not doing it out of obligation like they're doing it because they actually want to give, which I think is also, you know, is also a nice way to look at it. So like, it's not a back and forth thing. Everyone's acting out of their own volition. And um, men, I also think this is true. Like men shouldn't really receive it until uh, until they can really find joy in giving because, I mean, this is a generalization, but I think it's mostly true. Like uh, most heterosexual activity tends to be more focused on male gratification to the frustration of women, but I think also the frustration to certain men on some level. So I think in itself, that wasn't a bad thing. But of course, they used it to get people to spend more money. In one taste, there was an entire belief system built around the central concept of oming that differed in some ways from that in the welcomed consensus and mirrored it in others. The big thing was, it was all, everything was uh, connected back to OM, uh, the orgasmic meditation. Um, so there's this idea that there's like this flow of sensation through the world, kind of like, I mean, kind of like the Tao and Taoism, and we would call it the orgasm. I like the word orgasm, the definition of the word orgasm would change the deeper and deeper you got into one taste. Um, and there's this idea that, uh, God or the higher power or the creator of the universe, like, uh, made things flow through sensation. So if you can listen to sensation, which is what you learn how to do in the own practice, you can learn how to properly respond to life. And that was basically like the core belief of one taste. And, And it's not, you know, it's not that different than other belief systems that believe in following your feelings. Um, but it was taken to the degree of like, if you can learn how to stroke a clitoris perfectly, you can learn how to do everything perfectly in your life. And um, where it would get conflated is at, at deeper levels when you're in one taste. So, as I mentioned earlier, the word orgasm, uh, the, the decisions Nicole made, the one taste business direction, it was all kind of conflated with 
orgasm as God. So like people would use this word orgasm interchangeably referring to God, referring to Nicole's decisions, Nicole, uh, referring to one taste as a business. It was all referred to as orgasm. So a lot of people would get kind of tripped up where they want to surrender to this concept of a higher power, but in doing so they had to listen to whatever a one taste salesperson said to them um, or Nicole or somebody like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was essentially, that was essentially their belief in reality. I asked Rowan if there was any kind of us and them mentality in one taste. And he told me that those who had left, particularly if they'd been high up and respected within the organization, were painted as having lost their way or given in to their fears. They weren't told not to speak with them, but there was a sense that they were to be pitied. And for those who had no involvement with one taste at all, I mean, we use Harry Potter language very often, like anyone who was outside of one taste was a muggle. And uh, we were just, just using that language in itself was kind of um, a way of feeling superior or, or uh, yeah, separate than them. We started talking about whether Rowan felt there was anything dangerous about the way one taste operated. And while he mostly felt there was some financial exploitation, it was more about the ways they could twist something with some truth in it and take it to an extreme level. I found one example he gave me quite concerning. When I was leaving, there was this idea of aversion therapy as a, as a, as a common phrase in the one taste um, community. And aversion therapy, you know, they didn't invent it. It was like, if you're afraid of something, I mean, this is obviously a simplification, but if you're afraid of something, it's uh, often beneficial to, to do it, to face your fears, to do uncomfortable things. I think most people would agree that's generally true, but then they would use that as a reason for why people needed to do like really uncomfortable things like why a a young woman should sleep with a man that she really doesn't want to sleep with. Well, clearly you're uncomfortable. Maybe you'll grow from the experience. I mean, that, I mean, I think most of us would agree that's probably not the best uh, growth strategy for an individual, but they would take something that seems true and, and use it to an extreme. I thought that there must have been instances of sexual encounters in this kind of environment that were problematic for the women and blurred the lines of consent. Definitely. I mean, there are even layers to that. I mean, there were, there were certainly individual women who had sex that they didn't want to have to and experienced trauma from that. I certainly, I, I, but I do, for at least from what I could observe, that was kind of a minority of the experiences. I mean, some of the strangest stuff was that like they did somehow make people fall in love. Like, especially um, on the West Coast, there was this very, it's kind of a trope of a relationship where you would often see like a young, beautiful woman with no money paired up with a, a less attractive, wealthier Silicon Valley computer programmer or something like a, a match you wouldn't typically see, but she really liked him. Like there was some way that they, cause she wasn't getting paid for it. There's like, no one was giving her money. It was like, she was just sleeping with this guy or dating this guy and encouraging him to spend money on, on both of their behalves for, at one taste. And I think that was probably more common than, than someone really being forced into sex that they didn't want to have. If anything, I think a lot of people were curious about sleeping with people that they probably wouldn't normally, but they were choosing to because they were curious or they thought they would grow or, or they just like had oxytocin goggles on and found everyone attractive. Um, that, that probably was a little more common. There was a lot of marriages that happened towards the, towards my time that I was leaving where a wealthy person would end up marrying someone who was deep in the one taste staff. Um, I mean, looking back, it's like kind of obvious. It was like in order to get their money, in order to influence them to spend huge sums of money at one taste. Um, that was that was uh, yeah, that was 
probably the worst stuff that happened to people wrapped up in those seven-figure, basically, sales deals. I asked Rowan if Nicole would have been made aware of any trauma resulting from these dynamics within her organization. Yeah, but she very rarely directly engaged with anything like that. Like, um, anytime there was some directive that could lead to someone being traumatized or, or someone being used to get someone else to spend a lot of money, Nicole never did that directly. Like, she always had someone else on the executive team do it for her. Because there, there were, there was at least one instance when I was there where it went really poorly in, in that, like, the woman who was um, severely mistreated, she actually had enough of a backbone to call one taste out publicly and raise a stink. And uh, she, like, she didn't just fold quietly. And one taste's response to that, because like they, they couldn't really argue with her in the way she she raised the stink, um, they Nicole publicly shamed uh her second in command, who she instructed to do all the things that caused the harm to the woman. Like, but she flipped it around and turned her into a scapegoat. So I mean, I almost feel bad for for the scapegoat. Like she was in a sense used uh, and then and then punished for following orders by the person who gave her the orders. A biography of Nicole Daydone from a September 2014 appearance at the Wish Summit says, as CEO, she oversees the entire corporate culture which involves setting company policies, overseeing a team of seven executive officers, and leading One Taste public classes out of the Hilton Hotel. Ruan eventually came to the conclusion that elements of how One Taste operated didn't sit well with him, and he wanted to find a way to engage with the teachings without these elements. In his second year in the OM community, he formed his own breakaway house. Well, this was after I had worked for them officially, like on their staff. And I was, I really still believed in the principles that they taught. And I still felt I had a lot of growing to do um, under their guidance, getting an education from them, at least. But I was really turned off about their business practices. So I decided I was trying to basically create the best of both worlds. I got a bunch of other uh, owners or former staff members who felt similarly to me. And we started our own house in Brooklyn, where we basically recreated what the One Taste residence was, but without One Taste the company. And it was an, it was an attempt at like this halfway utopia. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and we were somewhat affiliated with them. Like it was, we were part of the own community, but we didn't in, interact directly with One Taste for at least the first half of the of, of that year. When I spoke with Rowan, I was quite surprised that One Taste allowed him to set up an offshoot. But in the process of researching this episode and learning more about the community that Nicole Daydone had drawn her concepts from, it makes a bit more sense to me now. I was really close with, I, mean, I keep calling her my cult mentor, but I mean, that, that's essentially who she was to me. Um, she, I was really close with uh, her, like on a I like a, we had a real, like, almost like a mother-son bond. Like she really was like my, my Obi-Wan person, like my, my mentor. Um, so even though I left the company uh, directly, I still was on fairly good terms with her and with staff members. And when I worked for One Taste, um, they mainly used me eventually for like writing on their behalf or like hosting their YouTube videos because um, they identified that I had a way, I could basically explain their concepts in a way that didn't sound super crazy to other people. Um, so they would hire me for different projects. So I was on good terms with them. It wasn't like I became a competitor in any way. Um, but 
what eventually happened was that as the Brooklyn house, the Brooklyn home house, as it was called, started to become like a well-known part of the home community, like people from around the world who were oming would come and stay at our house sometimes, especially when they did the following coaching program in New York, we would host people from out of town. Um, And once we started to develop influence, I think that's when they decided that we, they needed to find a way to like scoop us up, like a, like reclaim us as like a vassal state or something. So um, they started hiring people out of our house and um, trying to interact with us more and basically take control over what we were doing in our house as well. This was when Ruan was presented with an ultimatum. Yeah, so maybe about halfway through that year, um, they were still, One Taste was still asking me to come back and work for them. Um, Because I was doing like these contractor projects for them, writing ebooks for them or this and that. And they kept asking me to work for them. And like, I had such a terrible experience working for them. Like I was like, I was not willing to work for $2 an hour again. Um, But then I got the idea of like, oh, what if I work directly with Nicole, the founder? Because she's the person, she's the source of all of this wisdom anyway, right? So I reached out to her directly about writing a book with her, to which she said yes. But then um, around this time, I was getting extra pressure to work for them because for me to get direct access to Nicole, I was kind of skipping a lot of steps in their pyramid. Like uh, typically when someone gets to interact with Nicole directly, they've either commit their whole life to them um, or they've given like huge sums of money to the organization. Then they can get to spend time with Nicole. So it's kind of like cheating the system. Um, So there's a lot of pressure on me to basically work for them directly if I was going to write this book with Nicole and uh, I eventually got an ultimatum of a sort, like either commit your life to us or, or leave. And it wasn't an easy decision. Um, I, I, w- I wasn't going to commit my life to them, but I was very attached. I mean, for two years, this, these people were my family. Even after I left the company, like I was still very embedded in the One Taste community. Um, but eventually I made the decision to leave. And I thought I left on, pe- on peaceful terms. Like I had a meeting with my cult mentor and like, I told her like, yeah, I'm leaving, but like, you know, I still love you guys, blah, blah, blah. But then after I said that, she basically spent maybe two weeks uh, convincing everyone I was close to within the Ohm community uh, to turn their back on me. So I kind of got pushed out or excommunicated in a sense. And going back to, you know, what uh, we were speaking about before in terms of like the us versus them, like they couldn't let me stay in the Ohm community after I had just said I wasn't going to commit my life. That's too much of a liability um, in terms of their group reality. So they had to basically slander me and push me out. Unlike most people who've left high-demand groups, who would say they never joined a cult, Ruan had been aware of the cult accusations when he joined One Taste. He just didn't have a clear idea at the time of what that really entailed. I knew it was a cult. I knew people called it a cult, at least. I didn't really know what a cult was until I was in it. I think most people don't really get what a cult is unless they really do research, as you've done. Um, uh, but... So I knew people called it a cult. I knew there was odd things about it. I, f- I always thought I would spend some time at first. I was like, oh, I'll spend a year with these people and see what I can learn. After a year, I was like, oh, maybe I'll spend five years, you know. Um, I, but I always thought I would leave. I didn't want to spend my life, you know. I mean, the people who were considered lifers, who call themselves lifers in one taste, they had emptied their bank accounts and had completely, like, there's, there's, they don't even have the option of leaving. Like, this is just their life. Like, they only they don't earn income. They just live with one taste. And I, I mean, I I mean, maybe I could have been convinced over a long period of time eventually uh, to see the world that way. But at the time that I got the ultimatum, there's no way. I I mean, I wasn't that deep in that I would uh, give up my connection to the material world. 
asked Rowan about the process of leaving and how it affected him. I mean, it was very jarring. I, I did, I did move out, and and some of you know, I mean, there people that I was close with were involved at different levels. So the ones who were really deep in, they turned their back on me completely. Uh, many people would left. I mean, some some of my closer friends left around the time that I left. Um, but it was it was very jarring. I mean, schedule wise, like I had gone to like I had gone from having such a full day full of laughter and interesting conversations and and deep thought and like intimacy and not just physical intimacy but like real social intimacy to like going back to living in a little box by myself in New York like like that in the way that going into it was such a refreshing experience like going out of it going into the quote-unquote real world was uh was uh unpleasant. I mean, I definitely felt lonely and confused and I found it very hard to relate to my old friends just because they, I mean, I had two years of experiences that were hard to, hard to relate to. Um, and I found people to be very boring and like, I, I lived in New York this entire two years, but I was so disconnected from, uh, the real world that I didn't even know who the mayor of the city was. Like I didn't recognize that there was an election. Like I was very disconnected from like normal culture so that was very jarring. Yeah, I mean, leaving, I was a little over $30,000 in credit card debt. Um, part of it was putting uh, the one taste programs on my credit cards, but also I didn't really work. I mean, I earned income here and there, but I didn't have a job for two years. Um, so that was a huge strain. I, I, I also like psychologically was kind of unemployable. Like I tried I, I mean, I didn't even honestly, I didn't even try very hard to get a, an office job again. I just couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine working in an office again. It, it seemed crazy. So I ended up doing blue collar jobs, uh, working in restaurants, uh, uh, driving a cab, that kind of thing. Um, so I had a kind of rough, maybe maybe two years, a challenging two years after leaving. Um, but eventually I did pay off my debt and I did rekindle my, uh, my obsession with personal growth. And I've created my own business since. In contrast to most people I've spoken with who've exited cults, and in spite of his debt and loss of friendships, Ruan remains largely positive about his time with One Taste. I asked him what advice he'd give to someone who might be looking at joining a similar organisation, on what they might want to look out for. This is certainly not a popular opinion, but I mean, I don't regret going into One Taste. I actually still think it's one of the best things I've done in terms of my own personal transformation and uh, my connection to my own sense of purpose, not to say it was the only way I could have gone down, but um, if there's some group that's like this that seems to really help, just recognize that just because someone is helping you doesn't mean they don't also have an ulterior motive. Like I think most of us are very subject to the halo effect where you know if someone impresses us or does something good for us, we kind of assume they're all good, and that's that's just not that's not human nature. That's not how we are. So I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say someone shouldn't do something like this. I mean, certainly, uh, hopefully they can avoid anything traumatic, but, uh, to be aware that even the, even the best things can come with bad things, I guess is what I would say. I wondered if Rowan was able to stay positive on the whole because he'd managed not to go too deep into the organization. Maybe. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, just for my small observations from people who've left and who've, who feel differently, I think the the more the more someone abandoned themselves while they were in one taste, the harder it is for them to see the positives. 
Um, whereas like, I, I definitely did things that I'm not proud of. There are things that I wish I did differently, but for the most part, I did what I wanted to do within the, within the organization. And I think that's why I don't hold, I, I don't have this victim feeling when I look back at my time there. And I can, I mean, I, I do think, you know, kind of close to objectively, I, I got more benefit out of it than, uh, than loss. Rock Morin wrote for Playboy about Ken Blackman leaving One Taste and how this five-foot-tall man who was known as a master stroker had been with Nicole from the founding of the organisation. In fact, I'm told he'd become a master stroker prior to One Taste with the welcomed consensus. The former Apple software engineer's leaving may have created a turning point for Nicole, and this is where the reporter says she shifted into religiosity. This took the form of something called magic school, created for those in the inner circle. She appointed seven priests of orgasm to the school. In June 2018, journalist Ellen Hewitt published an article for Bloomberg Businessweek in which she interviewed 16 former staffers and students of One Taste. Quote, One Taste pitches itself to the public as a fast-growing company teaching connection and wellness to an increasingly mainstream audience but many who've become involved in the upper echelons describe an organisation that they found ran on predatory sales and pushed members to ignore their financial, emotional and physical boundaries in ways that left them feeling traumatised. The article said that One Taste claimed to have made $12 million in revenue in 2017 and was endorsed by Khloe Kardashian. Ruan spoke to the reporter about his debt and about being instructed to own with wealthy older women before they were targeted for sales. One Taste's response to the assertions in the Bloomberg article was, quote, The company denies using staff for bait and sex for sales, and says Meepa Gala now teaches pickup artistry-esque techniques and isn't a moral authority. I asked Ruan about this. I, I do help men date um, through empathy, which I, actually, I learned at One Taste. I mean, uh, I don't know who decided to write that. I mean, anyone in One Taste who actually knew me knew I was kind of an anti-pickup person, in fact. I, I mean, I did, I did uh, spend time in that world and found it very unsatisfying, which is why I sought a matriarchal organization to, to teach me better ways. And I mean, so I mean, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous statement in that uh, whatever I teach men on how to connect with women, most of it I learned at One Taste. So, yeah. An archive of Nicole Daydone's now-suspended website includes a boast on the About page that she had earned invitations to share the stage as a speaker alongside other luminaries such as Neil Strauss, Tony Robbins, Naomi Wolf and Esther Perel. I found the order of these mentions interesting. In case you don't know, Neil Strauss is best known for his pickup artistry background and his book about it called The Game. Nicole's About page also said that she was voted one of Vanity Fair's 12 women who changed the way we look at sex. But the only article I could dig up with that title mentioned her briefly in the intro and proceeded to list 12 other women who it credited with changing the way we look at sex. None of this seemed to be the result of a vote. I know this may sound like semantics, but it compounds as another example of a general attitude of looseness with accuracy and honesty. The Bloomberg article highlighted and possibly hastened an unravelling of the organisation. Rock Morin wrote for Playboy that after Ruan had left, 
Within a few years, in the wake of several lawsuits with six-figure payouts, Daydone left One Taste too. An SFGate journalist who inquired about the Bloomberg report was told by a One Taste representative, quote, All of the allegations are more than two years old from before One Taste transformed under new ownership and leadership into a traditional company with strong corporate governance, clear-cut sales policies and practices, and strict HR policies. But the article noted that Bloomberg Businessweek said some of the employees interviewed were involved with One Taste as recently as last year. By the 14th of November 2018, Ellen Hewitt was writing about an FBI probe into the company. Both the One Taste website and Nicole Daydone's website are now defunct. I asked Ruan about his understanding of the status of One Taste today. Um, since the Bloomberg article, they shut down their public uh, public centers and like they don't teach in-person classes as far as I know. I know the, I mean, the... The owners of One Taste also own this other property or this other like company called The Land where they do other kinds of retreats. I don't know if they do the orgasmic retreats or anything like that. So they, they exist in some form. And I think One Taste still has a media presence. I don't know if it, that's earning any income, but um, they don't exist in the way that they used to, no. One Taste was named for a Buddhist quote. Just as the great ocean has one taste, the taste of salt... So also this teaching and discipline has one taste, the taste of liberation. Nicole Daydone would say the quote as follows, Just as the ocean has one taste, the taste of salt, so does liberation, the taste of truth. In her TED Talk, she continues, And I felt like I had tasted a truth that was so undeniable I had to bring it to the world. As one taste wound down, the welcomed consensus, when Nicole had honed some of her key techniques and concepts, was still ticking away. RJ Testament's group had generally eschewed the spotlight to remain under the radar. Sasha Nelson met a man on Tinder in the fall of 2017, who was her introduction to the welcomed consensus. In part two of this episode, we'll hear about Sasha's experiences. You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. Details at ltaspod.com. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. Engineered by Andre Patrashev. Thanks to Corey Green of Transducer Audio for editing. A very special thanks to Christine Talbot Acosta, Ruan Mipagala, and Sasha Nelson for sharing their experiences with me. You can hear more of Ruan's story on the Rwando podcast and Christine and Sasha's at truthaboutrj.com. Information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. Thanks again to Audio Technica 
presenting partner for Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sex. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from true wireless to noise cancelling to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to cult information and family support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. For sexual assault resources in Australia, visit www.1800respect.org.au and in the USA, visit rainn.org. Thanks for joining me and be sure to tune in for part two. Don't worry, I'm not making you wait another month. You'll only have to wait a week for the conclusion. Catch you then.